right. So we are back here today for another amazing episode with Serena Kelly. How are you today? (laughs) I'm doing well. How are you? Awesome. Nice to be back. (laughs) Did you hear the episode in live time from the podcast? I didn't finish it. It was good though. But it's awesome. The edits were good. Yeah. And it's cool. Like, you know, you're hearing it here first. The first time that I'm saying some like major shit that I've never talked about publicly before. So it doesn't matter what podcast comes after. You heard it here first, guys. Amen. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So we ended up last time with Serena in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So you had just moved to Brazil you were talking kind of about the situation in the home there. Yeah. How it was more object poverty than what you were yeah. used to, right? Yeah. So I moved to really big homes. They called them combos in the cult, but they would be known as communes or compounds to the rest of the world. And these homes had 100 to 200 people. So for me coming in, as we had mentioned before, I was told to lie about who I was. I wasn't supposed to say that I was married dear, that I had grown up with Berg. I was just some random girl that came from Japan into Brazil. So it was a very interesting experience to be reading stories about me every day. You know, in cult publications, we would have two hours of word time with the cult publications daily. And some of that for younger kids would entail reading the Life with Grandpa series, which was about me and my sister and Ricky and Techi. So growing up, I mean, it was pretty much the same thing over and over and over, just lying about who I am and it being ingrained so much in my mind. Like, you cannot say you're married. You're like, you're Serena. You came from Japan. That's it. And my mom was gone already. We lived with her for like a couple months. And then she was off traveling and I never saw her. And I was raised by Jeremy Spencer, who was the lead guitarist of Fleetwood Mac. And yes, yes. So I was was he like, he was always my favorite musician from the family. Oh yeah. He was great with guitar. He was a great musician. It was a hard adjustment for me because I was always close to my dad, even though my dad was never around. And the last time we saw my dad, we were driving off in Japan down the street and he was standing out on the street waving to us until we were out of sight. And then when we got to Brazil, we got a letter from him telling us he could no longer be our dad anymore. And Jeremy Spencer was going to be our dad. I was already seven or eight when this happened. So, you know, it was a different experience for me. I never formed a relationship with him. It kind of became basically like I didn't really have any parents. So I kind of went from having these parents who were kind of sometimes around popping up on random visits to being raised by two people. Dora was another character in the life with grandpas. Right. She became my mother. She was actually there at my birth. Like I knew her. She was actually really the one who was raising me, not my mom and not my dad. It was her. And what was Um, she like? She was a kind lady. I had this conversation with a lot of friends. It's interesting how we describe adults in the cult as good or bad based on how much they beat us or abused us. When in reality, they're all adults and they all joined the cult and they were all complicit in everything that was going on. There was not a single adult that was just, oh, I have no idea. I'm just serving Jesus. You know, like this stuff was going on. And if they didn't agree with it, they left. 
And if they chose to agree with it, they stayed. So yeah, she became my mom. I became close to her, but it was never like a mother-father situation. It felt more like I was just being raised by these two people. I had a relationship with them, but really in my mind, like my parents had died, basically. Okay. And just so I understand, and just to recap from last time, you had already been separated from your mom and then your dad later. So first your mom, then your dad. First, my dad. When we moved to Japan, my dad stayed with Berg and I was only four years old. Okay, that's right. And I never lived with my dad again until way, 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 way later temporarily. Mm -hmm. And my mom moved with us to Brazil, but she was taking a leadership position. And in the cult, leaders were never with their children, ever. All the leaders were secluded in a secret home and all the children of the leaders were typically in another home being raised by other people. And that was typical for a lot of families, but especially leaders. It was just, you know, it's a distraction technique and a power technique. Like we've got your kids, so you got to enforce these rules because, you know, we'll do something with your kids and you'll never see your kids again. When I was young, I remember one of my earliest memories was we were living in a big home in Dallas and we had these two this young couple that were watching us. They're supposed to be watching this big group of toddlers. And I have this big scar on my knee from falling. And I just remember like blood everywhere. And they were supposed to be helping me to like patch it up, but they were like making out in the bathroom. So I was cleaning it by myself and just wondering where my mom was. My mom was in quarantine because Ugh. there was some sickness going around. So she was in quarantine, so they couldn't let me see her. And I just remember this visceral dull ache in my heart and my stomach, you know, where it's just like this ache, this void, like, where is my protector? Where are my protectors? Yeah. And not having them. And that's one of the things that marks you on the ache, right? It's that constant feeling of having no one there to protect you. Yeah. I know Christina probably relates a little bit to that too. What did it feel like for you guys to be separated from your biological parents? What was that like growing up? So I was taken by the babysitter that got my biological mother to sign legal guardianship of me under the guys that I need medical help. So at first I liked it because it was better than where I came from. I got food, I got water, I got someone was paying attention to me. I had a mother and a father. And it was great. And it wasn't until my dad was doing heroin a lot. And we, you know, I found him in the bathroom with a needle in his arm around two or three years old. And uh, my mom ended up leaving him. And it wasn't until she remarried another man. And we left my papa because that was like my safe space. And then uh, that's when things started going like really, really crazy for me. But I was very lucky to have my sister Sonia there and uh, which was my older sister. It was kind of like a little bit of forgetting because I was just going for my life then. It kept me safe not to really think about those things. And it wasn't until I always knew I was kind of adopted, but it wasn't until later when I was in seventh grade that, you know, I found out that my name wasn't my name, that I'd been going by Shannon Fox, Shannon Fox my whole life. And then I went to the guidance office and I got my birth certificate in seventh grade and it said Christina Sarmiento on it. And I was like, Oh wait, what, what is this? I thought I was adopted. I thought all these things. And then all of the abuse and stuff was happening to me. So I was like, well, what, like, I don't want to be here. Where are these people? And that's when I was like dreaming of the day that I could leave. How old were you? When uh, I was like 13 or 14, when I found my birth certificate and mm-hmm. 
it made sense why it wasn't, they called me by a different name. They didn't even actually legally change it. My name was still Christina Sarmiento, but all of my school records, they shouldn't box on it. I wasn't allowed to get a job or get a driver's license. They kept me at home and it made a lot of sense to me, the reason why. And then just going by Shannon Fox and they changed it to Shannon Fox Bates because she remarried uh, another man, but it wasn't ever really my name. And I didn't really know what I was. People thought I was a mix. They thought I was black and white. And my mom would tell me I was Puerto Rican and I was like, okay, but it wasn't until later I found out I was Filipino and Native American. So I didn't even know my race or anything like that. Wow. Wow. Serena, what was the relationship between Dora and Jeremy Spencer? They were married. Um, oh, they were? Yeah. Okay. I did not know. Yeah, that. they were together. I can't say if they were legally married or not. Who knows? Because in the cult, like so many couples split up and then got together and Jesus was telling them to be together or whatever the hell was going on. But they were not like an official couple in the Philippines when I was born. But by the time we went to Japan, they were a couple and they were basically acting as our parents and our guardians. And they did so up until I was 14 years old when my mom finally came back after Berg died. So yeah, they, they were basically my parents. And it really, after a while, I just got used to it. You know, it, it got to a point where I kind of forgot about my dad. I stopped missing him. He would send us envelopes with a card and he would say, oh, I'm sending you $5. But of course the money would always be gone. The envelope would be open. I'm like, where's the money? And everyone would be like, oh, I guess it got lost in the mail or something, you know, but just typical, like, you know, <laughs> they, at the call, it was just, everything was about how can we get more money? How can we, yeah. how can we swindle money off of people? So yeah, after a while we'd be in contact with my dad, but after a while it became kind of like, why am I doing this? why am I talking to this man that I really don't know? Like I'm approaching my teens on becoming a teenager and I haven't seen this dude since I was six. So it became just like a complete separation. And I realized not then, but obviously in my healing journey, like the separation and the constant moving, I started hanging on to things and attaching emotional value to stuffed animals or to food or to comfort. And these are still things that, you know, hold value for me today. I've suffered with eating disorders my entire life and I've been a hoarder. Like I would collect every single thing. And then I wouldn't get rid of anything. Okay. Did you experience any bullying in that home there in Brazil? I experienced bullying growing up the entire time. One, because of my look. So here's what happened from six to about 13 or even six to 12. I wasn't really talking about who I was. And then eventually it started coming out. And I'm a kid. I don't know how it came out. And suddenly around 12 years old, when my mom had reached like the top of the top leadership, leading the entire continent of South America, it was like, oh, and her name was Sharon in the family, in the cult. They were like, oh, this is Sarah Davidito. And these are her children. So it was suddenly became this huge thing. And she'd come visit us and everyone like, oh, Sarah Davidito, you know, like very worshipful stuff. But to me, like going from a normal life into this like big, weird celebrity status, it was hard for other kids. So I got a very mixed reaction. I would go to other homes and people would come up to me with their cult publications, you know, the ones, the good thoughts and treasures. We all had our own copies and they'd ask me to sign them. 
And like, can you please write a note in this for me and sign it, Mary dear? And it was just the most bizarre thing. People would say like, oh, Jeremy Spencer raised you and you're married here. Like, you're so blessed, you know? And, and uh, what are these songs? What's it like? Like, how is Grandpa Berg? I suddenly had to switch and be like, wait, I thought I wasn't talking about my life. Okay, I guess I am talking about my life now. And it was so hard to go from lying for so many years to being honest in a way. Yeah, so it was so unstable. And, then, and at that point, you probably hardly knew what was real and what wasn't. What was truth and what was No idea. Here. No clue. The way that I had to live my life, lying from four years old up until like 12, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, you can talk about your life now. And I was just like, okay, is it okay to say married here? And I didn't know what to say. And then I was still not allowed to say I grew up in the Philippines with Berg. And I also was in Japan with Berg. You know, like it was just, I didn't know what to say. And then if I would say something, they'd be like, you said too much. So then it became, everyone is looking up to you. You need to be a bellwether. A bellwether was code in the cult for setting a good example for the rest of the group. So then all of a sudden I had this pressure on me to be a good girl and to set the example. So a lot of kids, especially as I started getting older, at 14, I started taking buses by myself from Rio to Sao Paulo to go to Sao Paulo to be in other homes and experience other ways of life because I was rebelling in a way because this wasn't normal to me. I started acting out. I was uh, stealing a lot from stores. I was sneaking out. Now looking back, it really wasn't that bad. I wasn't a bad kid, but in the cult, like any type of lying or mouthing off, cursing, I started cursing. They but you had like, all your money stolen from you. So it's not like you even had money to get anything, you know? It's yeah. Like, well, have, you yeah. And all of us, like, I don't think, I don't know if I know a single one of my friends who did not steal something at some point. And the only reason I didn't was because I saw two people getting arrested very close to me for it. And I was like, fuck no. Yeah. So, but I was cute and blonde. So in Brazil, like everyone's like, Ooh, happy to have me around. You know, when you go to stores, like nobody's thinking I'm walking around stealing stuff. So I'd end up being like the main thief in the group, like just <laughs> taking all this stuff. I stole from stores all the way up until I was 18, 19 years old. Like I kept going with that. I think maybe because you started yeah. to value things so much. Yeah, and exactly. 40, that's why it became so addictive, right? So you were like, so I addictive. need to collect more things. This essentially is my value or whatever. Yeah. You know? like, I think that's a, an Aquarius personality type of girl Aquarius. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Very secretive and able to like distract people and then like, okay, I need to do this. Like people value me for these weird skills that I have, like for following someone or hiding and nobody knowing, like blending in or not or standing out. Like I, you know, you can choose and and the shoplifting thing was out of control. So yeah, you're totally right. And these things all had value to me. And I remembered at the exact time where I had them and I travel around with all these things I stole from stores just ridiculous <laughs> shit. But, you know, that was something that had value to me. So yeah, in Sao Paulo, when I started getting older, 14, 15, I was going there. I went there a few times into these bigger homes where there were a lot of teenagers, people my age. And that's when I started experiencing a lot more bullying. I was coming in as a celebrity. So all the adults in the home were like, oh, Mary Deer's here. Like, let's give her this extra special treatment and blah, blah, blah. And so... 
I looked different. Like I don't look Latina. I'm 5'10 right now. And I was getting very tall back then. And I was very tall, very thin, just a very, very awkward teenager. So I started getting a lot of bullying for my looks. And that was a way for a lot of the other kids to kind of put me down. Like I'd go to sit down and people would pull the chair out from under me and I'd fall. And they'd be like, oh, there's a big space in the room. Must be because Serena fell on the floor. Or um, they'd be like, oh, Serena, you're so skinny. You can stand behind a broom and disappear. A lot of things. And of course, I'd be like, ha, 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 that's so funny. And Or they'd be like, you look like a boy because you don't have any boobs and you don't have any butt. Like in the cult, it was a very patriarchal society. So objectifying women was totally normal. And young teenagers and boys learned to do this very, very, very young. So it was normal to just talk about women. And Berg did this in his cult publications all the time. Like, you know, are you a wild woman or the girl who wouldn't or the girls who said yes and all of these things. And, you know, if you were a big busty woman with long dark hair and big boobs and big butt, like, you know, you're considered like the creme of the creme. Like that's oh, how totally, you Oh, totally. Because be. you'll make more money. Yeah, yeah. There was a direct correlation between your value and your looks. That's Absolutely. how we were raised. So the more unattractive family members, they're fucked. They yeah. were on JJT, which was Jesus job time, which was doing the chores, like the shit work, cleaning the bathrooms, cooking. They didn't want you out in public because that wasn't part of you know, the face of the group, which is all these beautiful people, right? So exactly. Really heartbreaking. So it was weird for me because I was blonde hair and blue eyed. So of course in Brazil, I'm considered super cute and different. So they'd be like, oh, great. Go out on the streets and beg because people would give me a lot of money. Like what is this 14 year old doing standing on the street with a bucket asking for money? But in the home, everyone was like, you're nothing. You don't have boobs. You're tall and skinny. And in Brazil, you know, the land of voluptuous, gorgeous females, I was really, really different. And I really stood out. So I felt ugly and I turned into, and I was already like very, as we talked about with Christina, started trying to be ugly on purpose earlier in life. So I would get less abuse, less sexual abuse. So I dressed with really baggy clothes. I hung out with the boys. I was always one of the boys. So, you know, with the girls, it was kind of just like, I don't know who you are. You need to go. And there were a few girls who were nice to me, but overall, you know, and the other boys, no no one thought, the boys didn't see me as like a pretty girl. They just saw me as like a weird, like one of the guys. So, you know, it was hurtful to be bullied like that, but eventually I grew into my (laughs) awkward body. And then by the time we moved to Mexico, it was a totally different thing, you know, when I Well, yeah, because I remember when I first met you, when y'all came down to El Salvador, (laughs) And we knew who you were, but I just remember my first impression of you was like, oh my gosh, she's so cool. She has so much confidence. Like, and then I I could tell that you were not like a rule keeper, you know, like you came down with a bad girl by then. But it was obvious you were a bad girl. We were all, I was only 13 in El Salvador, but I hung out with my older sisters who were more close to your age. And I had already seen my first orgy with, Mm. you know, the older kids in the home. And I didn't exactly participate, but I was there. I got locked in a cabinet and was threatened that she wouldn't let me out unless I drank a whole like quarter bottle of vodka. So that's what was going on in that home when you all showed up. And you guys were just another crew of like unruly teenagers. Yeah, (laughs) And you were also super nice. 
Like you were not stuck up. I would, that for me was very shocking because I had experienced teens from Mexico and they were all really stuck up or from Guatemala, you know, yeah. like wherever the more desired home was, those people yeah. were like totally bullshit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you were super nice. I liked you so much. Thank you. I really liked you too. And you know, it's because of that bullying, because I was treated so awful in Brazil and in Mexico too, that I never got this like, oh yeah, I'm so special, you know, because I realized how things can change so fast. So, I mean, we left Brazil when I was 15 and I stayed in a very, very secret WS home for one year. I was just locked away, counting the days till I could turn 16 so I could leave. And then that's when I left to go to Morelia in Mexico. And from then on, I pretty much traveled alone and I never really officially went back to WS because I hated- What age were you when you moved to Mexico? I was 15. I was almost 16. We moved in uh, December, January, and then I turned 16 the following February. Who did you move with? Like your Um, sister? My mom. My mom came back. So Berg died. The crow, the big leadership, the groups of people who were in charge of continents that all got dismantled by Karen Zerbe, who took over the cult, and my mom got demoted. So all of a sudden, my mom appears back in the home, and I'm 14, and she's like, Here I am to raise you. I'm your mom. And I was like, I don't know you. I just associated her with coming every year, maybe, or every other year, and we'd see her, we'd go on a little trip, and then she'd disappear again. So it was a very strange thing. And then on top of that, you're already 14. I finally had been in a place for eight and a half years in Brazil, and she's like, we're leaving and we're going to go to Mexico. No explanation, no, like, what do you think? And I was livid. Like that's really when I started rebelling when we, when we left Brazil, because I loved Brazil. I loved the nature. I considered it my home. I spoke fluent Portuguese and then we're just taken away and moved to Mexico where we opened one special leadership called world services home. And I was the only person my age. So I went from going to all these homes in Rio and all these homes in Sao Paulo, having friends everywhere, being able to travel to being stuck in a home with 30 people, the only person my age, and just kind of like waiting it out until I could turn 16 and start traveling as in in the cult, you weren't allowed to leave your parents or your guardians until you were 16 years old. So that year was really hard for me. Now, <laughs> when I turned 16, as you know, we had to read the Loving Jesus series that came out. So this was just the worst experience that you could ever put on a developing teenager <laughs> reading as because it's technically so the new rules of the cult were that 16 year olds were allowed to have sex. Now, all of us had most likely had sex before or had done a lot of other shit, but now we are allowed to have sex. However, there's a catch. You have to love Jesus while you're having sex. Oh, wait. And how, wasn't it like 12 volumes that you had to read? Three, three massive volumes, three, three massive volumes, three big books. And it took me weeks and you weren't allowed to have sex until you completed it. And an adult had to sit there and read it to you. And in this WS home where I'm the only one my age, it was awful. Imagine everyone knows how they were when they were 15 and 16 and talking about sex with your parents. And all the uncles are there just like licking their chops, waiting to like finish reading. Oh yes, my God. exactly. I had to read through it because I ran away at 15 
rejoined, had to do the six month babe status, which you have to read the whole thing. Then I got put on probation twice after that. Right after, like six months, six months. I was similar to me. I got put on the probation like pretty much right away. I might have already been on it actually, or like right after I completed. Did you ever masturbate to Jesus? Never. Never. No. I do now. (laughs) (laughs) So I stopped watching porn and I straight up turned on Jesus of Nazareth one day and I was like, oh shit, where's my migraine? It's looking fucking good right now. Oh, that's hilarious. Okay. Oh, man. So, yeah, Dora read it with me and she was like trying to make it fun and like, let's go out and have a coffee. And so now we're in public reading this in Mexico. And just to give you guys an idea of what we were reading, these are the type of things that we were taught. When we're having sex and you're about to come, you say, oh, Jesus, Jesus, fuck me, Jesus. I want your seed. Come in me, Jesus. And this goes for guys and girls, too. And so you call out to Jesus It's because Jesus is the one fucking you. It's not the person. So this was fucking awful. In WS, they had a date night, which was Thursday night. So you go down the hall of the rooms and all you'd hear from all the rooms was, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Oh, give me your seed, Jesus. And this is what I'm walking into. Oh my God. This is when I was like, I'm out. I'm out. I'm planning my escape. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I have zero money, but I'm out. I'm not living in this house. This is batshit crazy. I'm not safe. Plus the rules never apply to leadership homes in Berg's house. Like, Wait, oh, Serena. So the whole law of love, was that whole thing received through prophecy after grandpa died? Yes. Okay. Supposedly. Okay, Allegedly. Right. That's how so so once the leader died, basically they were like, Well, how are we going to still control the masses? Yeah. So they were like, Oh, being ding 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 prophecy. Yeah. So they started receiving prophecies from grandpa. So yes. David Bramberg yes. was still the one that was supposedly channeling all this information so that everyone would be like oh great perfect and then it came to like it was coming from jesus it was coming from moses or whoever it was Mm -hmm. abraham the gypsy came all the usuals and then not only that but we were also required to get daily prophecies all the time yeah, we were yeah. required in our two hours of daily word time, we were required to have prayer and prophecy. I would always be try to opt out by being the one to take the microphone that remember the record, the tape recorders, because everyone, we always recorded our prayer and prophecy sessions, but someone had to go around recording all these fake prophecies that people were getting. So I'd be like, oh, I'd love to help out with that. Praise the Lord, you know? <laughs> And so I would luckily be able to be the one going around with the dictaphone and I'd be like super on alert and they'd be like, yes, Serena, you're so good at that. And I'm like, oh yes, you know, I wish I could sit and pray, but I feel called to, you know, record these prophecies instead. I was Um, actually so good at getting and writing them that all the young people would come to me and I would just (laughs) write them out 
I couldn't for years. I couldn't make it out because I was like, this is just awful. But I, you know, I always found a way out of things. And my years of lying really helped. Like, you know, I could easily just swindle an adult into being like, yeah, I would love to join this prayer and prophecy session. But the Lord told me I had to cook a dinner for you all instead. So I'd love to sacrifice my time in order to, to cook dinner and I'll miss your two hour prayer and prophecy session. Praise the Lord. But, you know, I, I will love to feed you instead. <laughs> okay. So let me ask you this. So I assume at this point you've already had sex. Yeah. Are you comfortable talking about what that experience was like? We mentioned it last time. I had sex right. with a 22-year-old when I turned oh, right, 16 right, right. and I was put on partial excommunication. So oh, right yeah, away yeah. because the other guy in the house who I did not have sex with was jealous. So he reported on me right away. So after what that- was the whole sexual experience? Like what was sex like for you at that time? Did you like it? Did you hate it? Like what was, you what know, was your feelings around it? That's a great question. Honestly, I had sex with this guy just to officially lose my virginity. I wasn't even sure if I was actually a virgin or not because I had been penetrated my entire childhood life by Mm -hmm. adults with fingers and things. So I honestly was just like, I just want to have sex, official sex, not like assault sex, just to get it over with. I just want to lose my virginity. So I was like, you know, there were two guys in the house who were in their 20s and I was 15 and 16. So I liked this guy and we had a lot of flirtation. And finally, I just straight up asked him to have sex with me. And he did. It wasn't really that hard. There wasn't like, you know, blood or anything like that. So honestly, in my mind, I was like, okay, great. And I was glad that he took my virginity. And I honestly... (laughs) To this day, I'm still not sure if, if he even took it because it really wasn't, painful, it wasn't a painful experience. It was like emotional for me because I liked him or I thought I liked him because I was locked in this house with two males way older than me. And then I was like, okay, great. I'm glad it's you. And then I left the home shortly after and went to Morelia. And I was like, cool, now I'll just have sex with whoever I want. That was it. It was not, there was nothing else to it. It was strictly to lose my virginity, but I was surprised to me, like how easy it was. That's the same way I took mine too. But did you kind of segue into a more promiscuous lifestyle or were you still pretty reserved with your sexual Yeah, I was pretty reserved. I was still very much of a tomboy. When I went to Morelia, I went immediately to a teen camp and I was told by all the shepherds, everyone's watching you. You're married here. You need to set a good example. And right away I fell in with the bad girls and I had cut my hair for the first time in my life. And I've basically never grown it out (laughs) again. I cut it real, real short. The 90s hairstyle, like right below your ears, a little mushroomy kind of thing, which was very considered like a very bad girl move to cut your hair. Because in the cult, like if you had long hair, that was considered more spiritual and like that you were more on fire for God. So when you cut your hair, that means you're a bad girl. So I did that right away. I fell into the bad girl crowd. And in the camp too, I met a boy. It was like love at first sight with him. But even in Morelia, I fooled around with a couple guys, but I never had sex. And it kind of became this thing where I did a lot of fooling around, but the sex thing, I feel like I've seen two things. Girls either get real, real promiscuous or they really, really, really close up 
and shut down. And that was me. Also, I hated having the spotlight on me. So I knew that anyone I had sex with, it would get around to the whole city. And the city had three to four homes. And I didn't want to give guys that privilege to say I had sex with Mary Dear, because as you know, when you, as soon as a girl had sex with a guy, the guy would tell everybody and everyone would judge their sexual performance. Everyone would talk about their private parts or like how they looked naked. I knew like, because of my status in the cult that I was kind of like a prize that guys were trying to get. So I actually decided, I was like, I'm not going to give myself away and I'm not going to subject myself to this embarrassment because it was hard enough for me, everyone knowing who I was. I didn't want people speaking about me in in a sexual way. So I actually didn't have sex and I was never promiscuous in the family because I knew that it would get around. And then obviously once it got around to all the teenagers in the home, it would get around to the shepherds. Then it would get around to my mom. And like, I didn't want that. I didn't want that at all. So I had to protect myself and I'm glad I learned to protect myself at a young age. And I was able to figure out this hierarchy that was going on because that helped me later in life as well. When I went through some really promiscuous times, like I was able to kind of stop myself and be like, So you did at one point enter into a more promiscuous lifestyle. When I left the cult, absolutely. Yeah. When did sex become pleasurable for you? So in Morelia, I had to go back to WS and then I was able to go back to Mexico later on when I was... Where was that WS home? In Ensenada, Baja California. Ah, okay. Yeah. I think it's Um, still there, right? Or isn't there like a home there still or something? There's homes all over the place around. So (laughs) yeah, who knows where they all are, but because I was in Mexico, that's why I was traveling around in Mexico. So I met this boy at the camp and I just zoomed in on him. We started contacting via email. I had to sneak out and go to internet cafes. This is the nineties guys. They didn't have internet accessibility at home. (laughs) So I go to internet cafes to use the computer and secretly email him from my secret email address. And we had this really, really beautiful love affair. And I just knew I was like, I'm going to go live with this boy. And his mother hated me because I was a bad girl. She didn't want me around. So I did this whole plan where I started living in a campground with her ex-husband and helping to raise her other children in this campground to kind of show her that I was good and I could be trusted. And eventually I made it into Mexico City where I lived in this home with this boy and we loved each other a lot. You know, we were both 18, 17 and 18. So just learning about sex. It, it was never like pleasurable, but it was an intimate moment between us. And I couldn't say, I'm sure I had an orgasm at some point. I really can't say. If I can't say, that probably means no. <laughs> but I truly loved him. He was like my first love. And we were together for four years and we left the cult together. One day in Mexico City, I said, why are you in the family? Why are you here? And he said, because you're here. And I was like, nobody. <laughs> I've been wanting to leave for years. <laughs> I'm here because you're here. And then I was like, why are we here then? Let's just leave. Let's leave together. So we did. (laughs) And then we left Mexico City together and ended up in Houston. So what age were you when you finally left? I was 18. I waited till I turned 18 and I was out because that way I didn't need to have any parental permission for anything. Mm -hmm. And it was just easier for me. Shepherds were watching me all the time. There was all kinds of stuff going on where I was just constantly under a microscope with all the leaders. And so in order to make things easier for everyone, I just bided my time and waited till I was 18 and I left like right away. <laughs> 
did the thing with Davidito happen before or after he left or right around after. the same time? After. So like right after. A couple years after. And interesting that you brought him up was that Ricky, I was in contact with Ricky the entire time. He oh. had left, he had left the oh, call. Wait, wait, yeah. I was going to ask you, whenever you were in Brazil during that whole time with Jeremy Spencer and then you were 14, where was Davida and Ricky? My sister was, she moved with us, but because she's seven years older than me, she immediately went to all these other, they called them teen combos, which were homes directly devoted for brainwashing teenagers. Cause that's when you're rebelling and that's when you're starting to question things. So she was immediately shipped off. I rarely saw her. She left the family. She left the cult very, very early when she was in Europe. She ended up going to Europe and I was in contact with her here and there, but because she left the cult, it was very difficult for us to be in contact. And Ricky had the same situation. He left the cult. He was figuring some things out and somehow he got my email address. I don't know how. How old was he when he left? I don't remember. I have no idea. It's written in the cult publications. He might've been 18 as well. And then he started emailing me and in Mexico city, we were allowed to use the internet for like, I don't know, 30 minutes a week or something. Like there was always some kind of time frame on it. And he would email me all the time. Like, because at the time they were talking about him in the publications, how he was considered, you know, a bad example. And Zerbi was like, basically saying, my son is evil. We have to pray. And this is when we started praying against him and praying against my sister. And they developed these demons. The Vandari were the demons. These were all the kids who were leaving very early on in the nineties when we were all much younger. And Ricky would write me and say, have you read this bullshit? Like, can you believe what they're calling me? And nobody knew I was in contact with him. I was doing this in secret because I knew I would get in trouble and be put on probation. You would be put on probation for all kinds of things, not just sex, Mm -hmm. for speaking to ex-members or for questioning or using curse words or ridiculous things. And so I was in contact with him in secret. He wrote me and he said, look, you got to leave and I'll help you. I've got money. I can help you leave. But I was scared. You know, you didn't know any other way of life. And I saw how everyone was treating him. So I was just like, nah, I'll do it myself. I'll do it my own way. But he was the one who had the most influence in me leaving because I saw how awful they treated him. And he was still like my brother. We never lost contact. He was always writing me the whole time I was in Brazil, um, telling me what was going on. And so when I did, when I did leave, I ended up contacting him and I went and visited him in California before he died, very shortly before he died, actually, like a year before his death. When I left the cult, I was in Houston and he was so, so proud of me and so happy for me. He's like, I can't believe you did it. Come over here. You'll always be like my sister. Come visit me. So I did. I visited him in California and we had lunch together and we talked and, you know, he tried to get information like, where's my mom? Where? And I didn't know at that point. I had no clue where his mom was. I was gone from that home for years. And he asked me all about my family. How's everybody doing? Where are they? We got to get them all out. How can we do it? But at that time, I was only 19 or 20 and I was in my own world. You know, I had started partying, doing drugs. And I was just like, I don't want to deal this, do this whole wrestling thing. Yeah, the last thing, thing I like, hear about is this. Fuckers, I just ran Yeah, I don't want to talk about your mom. I don't want to talk about my mom. I just want to like go back to the club and take drugs and party because like I'm I'm numbing. (laughs) Were you working at a club or a strip club? I started working at a massage parlor when I left the family and it was awful for me because a lot of, you'd have to massage a lot of disgusting old naked men. So coming from 
cult where you were constantly molested and abused by disgusting old naked men. That's not a situation I wanted to be in. So I made the decision that if anyone was going to be naked, it was going to be me. So I'm going to go work at a strip club. And that's when I started stripping. (laughs) Do you think David Davidito at that time was trying to figure out where his mom was because of wanting to do her harm or just to try to rescue her? What do you think if you had to speculate over the dramatic ending and that plan? What do you think was the bigger intent behind it? Was it to sabotage the family in the biggest way he knew how? Or do you have any insight or speculation to what was happening? I can only say what he told me at the time, and he felt responsible as I did. And I understood him because I felt responsible because my mom was a leader and had a hand in abuse of separation of families and physical abuse. And she had a hand in his own abuse. And Rick wanted to hold them accountable. He wanted to bring them to justice, however that could happen. You know, and and I knew that he was very angry and I didn't feel safe in speaking with him about my parents or my life but I knew that his intentions were good. I knew he felt responsible and that he wanted to stop this cult and bring his mother to justice. But I wasn't there yet. You know, I, I wasn't there. I was doing my own thing. And that's pretty much what he explained. He's like, we've got to stop them. We've got to bring to justice. We've got to get your whole family out. These fuckers all need to be put in jail. And, you know, that was his plan, but it became, you know, as you know, they're very secretive. They've been doing this already for 30 years now. So of course it's easy to say that, but there's no way he didn't know where his mom was. And he was trying to get information from other people, including me. And I had not been in contact with Berg or Zerby or anyone for years. I was just a kid. So I had no other information to be able to give him. So I know. So essentially he kind of just like basically lost hope. Yeah, it seemed like it. I can't say for sure because we kept in contact. And then about six months before his death, we kind of stopped getting in contact. It was kind of more on my end. And I want to go party. I want to go take a bunch of drugs and pretend like my life is awesome and cool. Would you, knowing how everything went down now, would you have done anything differently? Of course, you know, like there's so much guilt that I have, especially once I found out that he died. I felt guilty because I was like, I should have been there for him more. I should have acknowledged like what he was going through. I should have, I should have, I should have, I should have, you know, he was like my brother. And when that happened, I felt like partly responsible. Like he was alone. He felt like he had no allies. You know, it must've been my fault, but that's guilt that I'm putting on myself. There's no way that I could actually know that for sure. Just for the people listening, like, cause that's very, very powerful. And like the guilt that I felt when my mom died and how I just couldn't stop being angry and mean to her, even though she was dying. Cause I hadn't lived with her since I was 15. I ran away and I never lived with her again till 10 yeah. years later. And then all yeah. of a sudden she's like, wants to be my mom again and impose boundaries and rules. And I'm like, nobody does that to me, you know? And I was yeah. just furious and I didn't know why. And so then she died. And of course I suffered from massive, massive guilt. Cause I was like, why couldn't I just pulled it together? Why couldn't I just stop being a lunatic before she died? Exactly. And it wasn't until I could finally look back on my past, recognize why I was angry and then forgive her first and then forgive me was I finally able to let go of that. But I'm just like wondering how you were able to move past it. 
I've, I didn't, I didn't move past it for years. And especially, you know, in the last five years, since I've been on this healing journey, there even more guilt came up because I now, as I'm learning about healing and I'm learning about forgiveness, I'm just like, oh my God, I could have helped him more. I could have done this. I could have done that. Like things could have changed so differently, but I have to keep reminding myself, like I was a kid, I was 20 years old. I was 21. You know, I was working in clubs. I was getting into the party scene. I felt accepted in the party scene. I started hanging out with a lot of people from Iran and Lebanon and a lot of other countries and because they too, their parents immigrated. So they also didn't feel like, you know, the U.S. was totally their home. So I connected with these groups and I felt like I had found my people and I just didn't want to deal with all of this pain and guilt and things that had happened with Ricky and then his death as well. And the way that it kind of thrust my family into the spotlight, I didn't want to deal with it. Of course, like even now, I sometimes I'm like, oh, I should have done this. But, you know, I was a kid and I was just doing the best that I could to survive. I was in full on survival mode, making my own money, trying to figure out my own life. And yeah, that's all that there is to it. And there's nothing else that I could have done. Of course, you know, there's no way I could have helped. The situation. No, it, it had to happen that way. I mean, exactly. Think about it. Like, by your fruit, you shall know them. And yeah. if they had been able to continue to bury it and bury it, people would not have understood the gravity. It wouldn't have shook up the family like it did. Yeah. It really shook things up, you know? It shook everyone. Yeah. That was the catalyst for a lot of things in the cult and for my own life and my family's life. And it continues. Yeah. Those actions for your audience, he committed a murder-suicide. He killed one of his nannies. We spoke about it in the other episode. And he stabbed her multiple times in an effort to try to get information on where his mother was. And then he shot himself afterwards, shortly after. And of course, since one nanny was dead, that leaves one other nanny alive to put the spotlight on. And that was my mom. And because she had written the publications and everything. So his actions are reverberating even to this day. You know, his anniversary of his death is every January. So there's always stuff going on in the news or a publication or an interview. So this stuff is happening years and years and years later that we're still having the repercussions of. So it's not something that I can ever run away from, but it's something that I can constantly learn from. And of course, for us, it was just like, oh my God, look what happens when you leave the family. You turn into a crazy murderer. Exactly. So anyone who is still in the cult, that was a big lesson. Like, see, if you leave, you're going to be a murderer and you're going to kill yourself. And killing yourself was also like a big, big no-no, almost worse than killing someone else because it was like you gave up on your life and turned your back on Jesus and blah, blah, blah. So he was made a huge example of in the cult. I was already gone by that time, but I knew many people who were still in and that scared them even more into staying in the cult longer. Because everyone thought that if they were going to leave, they were going to either turn into a stripper or they were going to kill themselves. So those were great options. When you left, did you have anyone that didn't believe your story? I didn't speak about my story. When I left, luckily in Houston, because my dad by that time had left WS, he was in a home in Houston and he started working, volunteering with the Red Cross. So I was like, perfect. That's my story. So I told everyone I grew up in Brazil. My parents worked for the Red Cross. And that was my story until like two years ago, to be honest. (laughs) I never spoke about my real story ever publicly until last year. 
And no, a lot of people don't believe my story. And unfortunately, it's a lot of ex-members and things who question my story. But that's okay. It's a crazy story to have. And it's hard, you know, for people to wrap their heads around. A lot of people that I've told will burst into tears about my story. And I'm like, this is just my life. Like, I don't know any other way. And it's hard for people to hear about it. But yeah, there's been people certainly who have called me liar. I'm trying to get attention that I'm being narcissistic or whatever, but that's fine. People are always going to say that about you whenever. So I didn't speak about it until last year publicly. And when you finally did, what sort of feelings and things came up when you finally did? Did you have to do healing on actually coming out and saying these things? Absolutely. Was it uh, a lot of times, a lot of like secondary trauma happens after when someone starts to speak about it. And I, I dealt with a lot of that myself. Yeah, I dealt with a lot of that. I cried and cried for months. I would say all last summer, I was just crying because there's no going back. This was stuff I had was taught to lie about you know, changed my story and stuff that I'd hidden. And then also at that time, when I finished college, I had a very successful corporate career making six figures a year. And everyone knew me as this boss lady. Like I was killing it in the corporate industry. I was in IT for 13 years. I was able to hide behind my degrees and my accolades. So breaking all that down, all of these things that I built up around myself to have this picture of success, and this picture of, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine, guys. I'm fine. I'm just this girl that grew up in Brazil, but look at all my degrees and all my career and everything and breaking all that down completely set me into a whole different trauma space that I had to heal from. Absolutely. I cried and cried. My first post that I made public, it's on my Instagram. It's called No Longer Will I Be Shamed Into Silence. And as soon as I posted that, I cried and cried and cried the entire night. And I knew like there was no going back. Um, And I had just transitional dilemmas, you know, and I had just, I had transitioned from like a corporate career where I had this degree, I worked in this field, I do this job, I'm this manager of this and this and this to, I grew up in a sex cult and this is my family and this is my real life. This is who I am. So it was very hard for me. Yeah. To do that. And still like talking about things that I've never spoken about before is still very hard because once it's out there, it's out there, but I just couldn't be, as I said it, I couldn't be shamed into silence anymore. And that's really how I felt. I felt like I was being shamed into silence by others who were saying like, you're lying. It wasn't as bad as you thought. You're just wanting attention. You didn't have it as bad as so-and-so and you didn't have it as bad as someone else. And all of these things kept me quiet for so long. I have people tell me, when I tell people my story, they're like, you don't have any emotion about it. And I'm like, well, this yeah. was just my life. I'm like, this is what I experienced. It was a normal everyday thing. You know, I, I don't have an emotion about it. I get emotional about the journey that I had of healing the stuff of where mm-hmm. I was and then where I am now. Um, Absolutely. That's when I, like, I start to get like teary eyed. I'm like, and this is what I did to overcome that. So it seems like you are a high functioning person when it came, you know, making six figures and stuff like that. I became a manager of a multi-million dollar business, my second job I ever had. And people are like, well, you're high functioning. And I'm like, yeah, you're really, okay. You're okay. Like you have a good job. You're making money. You know, people care about you. And I'm like, but I want to fucking die. Um, yes, exactly. Could you guys maybe just each give like one or two things that helped you to cope or get through that initial panic from revealing yourself and recognizing that you can't go back? What gave you like some relief? What was the reward waiting for you on the other side? 
seeing our mutual friend thrive so much after she came out and started talking mm-hmm. about her story and seeing yeah. how freeing it was for her. And her story was very similar to mine as she, her mom was also in a leadership position and seeing like how much she, how free she was and how happy she was and how much her life just fell into order. And meanwhile, I'm in this corporate career, making money, traveling, doing all these like wonderful things, but I'm dead inside. I'm dead inside. And I know that I'm dead inside. And I know sitting in my office that I'm meant for bigger things. I said, I did not go through all this shit in life just to sit at this office and direct people around. Like there's no freaking way. And she helped me, you know, being able to reconnect with her. I remember that whole transition from her Mm -hmm. being in Austin and then propelled to this new way of life. Like almost it seemed overnight where everything just came and like fell into place. Yeah. Yeah, What about you, Christina? For me, I haven't actually put my whole story out there. I have told people in my life it, but the way that I used to tell people my story was because I used it for manipulation when I was younger. If you knew what happened to me, you're less likely to hurt me. If you know that everybody, if you know everybody is treating me like shit and that I was beaten and kept in places that you you don't keep children and you know molested and stuff like that, then you're less likely to do that to me. So I used it as a defense mechanism for a really long time and also for shock value. And it wasn't until probably two years ago was when I stopped really talking about the story and I started healing from it. And then I started talking about the healing of that and then shining a light on my manipulation and my call it my spider aspect of myself, weaving this web that, you know, will trap you in it to, uh, act a certain way and think that you are acting in my best interest, which I'm actually just literally tricking you into caring for me and getting people into transactional relationships with me. Um, So I haven't fully told my story. I'm in the process of writing a lot of my stories down and stuff. I too have kind of pushed myself away from my family, not in contact with pretty much any of them. And a lot of times I'll tell me this isn't your story to tell or the same stuff that they told me growing up that you're a liar and that oh, I'm called the shitster. Mm-hmm. And uh, so right now I feel really good talking about it. Like it's me, here I am. I like to show people the results, really. This is where I was and here I am now and the complete and total difference between that and then focusing on my process rather than the actual stuff, but making people aware of the abuse and things that can happen and people look like they're perfectly fine. I've had counselors and people tell me, like, I don't know how you're not dead, how you're not a prostitute, how you're not strung out on drugs, and I don't yeah. even know how you have a job. And I was like, I'm great. Yeah. <laughs> I totally oh, yeah. resonate with that, Christina. Yeah, because I think it was better that I did it this way because people don't see me as someone from a sex cult. They see me as someone who was really successful and was in corporate industry for 13 years. And even my colleagues are finding out about this and they're like, whoa, I had like no a idea. UT graduate. So yeah, smart. UT, University of Austin, Texas <laughs> guys, <laughs> corporate communications with a minor in rhetoric and writing. And I have multiple associate degrees as well. And I think it's actually cool that I came out this way because I didn't brand myself as a sex cult survivor. I branded myself as a high functioning individual that can deal with a lot of people and manage teams and international locations. And then I came out as this other person and people were just like, I think it even has bigger impact. And they were just like, what? (laughs) 
So it's kind of cool that that we went that route. And I think uh, you'll get that way more as you keep telling your story too, for sure. Mm-hmm. And understanding that you may face consequences. I don't have a relationship with my family either. For the first mm-hmm. time in my life, I am not in contact with them because they don't want to be involved. They don't want the light on them. And that's understandable. But the pain that it caused me was almost unbearable. It's really easy to go into a dark hole when you feel like your family doesn't love or care about you. And Absolutely. I lost my mom, who was like my one, you know, stream of unconditional love. And then I have two half sisters. So we we're already very different, already fought all the time. But, you know, you have that like little dental floss sort of mm-hmm. connection, like loyalty or whatever. And, you know, one thing comes and snips it and it's gone. And exactly. you're like, holy shit. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it takes a massive amount of courage and bravery to just be like, all right, this is yeah, it. This is it. But then the freedom that comes with it, right? The authenticity yeah. in relationships, being exactly. able to show up 100% with who you are and with what you need. Exactly. Someone asked me this the other day, like, if you had a message, like, what, you know, for healing, like, how would you convince people to heal? Well, first of all, I said, I wouldn't convince anyone to heal because that's something that you have to come to on your own, in your own way. And I wouldn't ever be like, you should heal because it's a fucking hard road. Like, as you said, you'll lose (laughs) friends, you'll lose family. You have to go to some really dark places. But for me, the two main things was coming out on the other side and realizing like I was carrying all this weight of like the sins of my parents and the sins of the, of the leaders of the cult and all of the stuff that I thought was mine to carry for years. And it wasn't my burden. It wasn't my fault and it wasn't mine to carry at all. And like letting go of all of that. I described it in a trauma session with my coaches that there was a string tied around my neck and a cinder block. And I was just sinking into the ocean. And that was pretty much my life, just sinking into the darkness. And I was able to cut that string and float back to the top. And that's really how my life felt like, you know, this whole time up until just a couple of years ago. And then being able to live authentically, authentically, authentically. (laughs) And yeah, being able to establish boundaries and know what you like and know who you are and not lie for the first time about anything in your life. It's just, it's crazy to me that I'm like, wow, wait, I don't need to make up a story about this. I can just say it. Oh, this is wonderful. (laughs) And it's just very freeing, but simple things like that, that you don't know and you think is normal, but it's not normal. It's just the way that you created your life. So now like on the other side of that is just being yourself 100% and letting go of all this weight that you thought was yours to carry around. And it really wasn't. And it never was. One thing that Olivia helped me with when we went through the 12 steps of AA was making amends. Now, a lot of the amends I had to make, I didn't have to make a lot because I didn't really harm other people. I did a lot for myself. And then I ended up making those amends to those people. I had like 10 or 15 of them. And I was like, I thought I was supposed to have this like amazing, amazing, like feeling and like I overcome something and I finally let all this stuff go. And then she was like, you need to make an amends to yourself. And that's when like, even thinking about it right now, like that's when I like had that moment, like I, I broke down and I had to forgive myself. Forgive yourself over and over and over. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah. Even thinking about it now, like forgiving myself was super powerful. And it was compassion for yourself for everything you went through. Like if it was somebody else, 
Yeah, I know. And I you would, heard everything. It would you'd have endless compassion. Right. Yeah. I would be like, do you want me to cook you a pie? Like, are you okay? Can I hold you? Like the difference between like me thinking about doing that for myself, it was like, no, you got to get over this. It's no, not okay. Yeah. But yeah. when I think of in terms of other people, then I'm just like, I, yeah, like you said, I have endless compassion. Yeah. And I think a lot of us do, like a lot of us were raised empaths and we were taught not to care about ourselves, but to care about others. So it's so easy to just discard anything for any feeling or thought or action for ourselves and just put it all on others. And I'm still learning that to this day, but putting yourself first and realizing, like asking yourself, like, what do I like? Who am I? What do I want in this moment? And putting yourself first before anyone else, like that's life-changing and constantly having compassion for yourself and forgiving yourself and being caring and loving with yourself. It's just something like that you have to give yourself because we never got that in childhood. I think I was like 28 years old and I remember I was in a relationship and everything was going bad and all these things. And I remember sometimes I used to call my mom that took me, I would just call her because I knew what she would say. And I just needed someone to say what I already knew to me. And I remember her talking and like, I was just giving and giving. She's like, well, you know, there's a line that you just can't always give. And I said, excuse me. She's like, yeah, you know, you have to have a boundary. Like you have to like cut yourself off from giving so much. And I was like, this is the first time you've ever said that to me ever in my life. And I didn't know that there was a line of how much I can get. And she's like, how do you not know that you can have a boundary? I was like, you never taught me what a boundary was. Like I've been giving and giving. And she's like, no, like you need to have a line. And I was like, I'm 28 years old. And you're just now telling me it's okay to have a boundary and a line and like explaining to me what that is. I was like, I gotta go. Like, and like that really shook up my whole world was that- not in my reality. Was that your biological mom or the one who raised you? The one that raised me. So Um, I know we're getting a little short on time here, but I wanted to briefly go over because this is, you know, obviously a huge component of my project, the activation project and the therapy that we use, the first initial mm -hmm. guided journey, which did you do two of them? I did two, yes. You did two of them. So Serena actually worked with, the guys who mentored me and, and led me through my first journeys after me, you know, I told her about him, I told her about the situation and how incredible it was for me to be able to get out there and like open, you know, up and my story and everything. So I would love to hear about how that experience was for you and maybe sort of what it led to in your life. And if you would recommend it to others. Absolutely. It was life-changing because for the first time I sat down and told my entire story, you know, two days worth of eight hours. (laughs) And I felt like I sat there with no judgment and that I was in a very protected space. Now I've done therapy, I've done coaching, I've done Reiki, I've done ayahuasca, I've done mushroom, you know, everything, everything under the sun to help in my healing journey, I've done it. But I never felt like I was in a safe enough space. You know, like when you're doing ayahuasca, you're around a lot of people you don't know. When you're talking to a therapist, they have rules and regulations. And if you talk about your abusive background, they're like, well, you know, I might have to report this. And you're like, no, I'm okay. This happened, you know, 19 years ago, you know, so you feel like you're still having to hold back a lot of things. So of course, doing the guided sessions, it makes you more open, but being able to sit and and explain yourself without judgment and then getting really, really good feedback in return was I've never experienced that before. I've never sat down and told my whole life story and gotten very, very 
direct feedback and advice, but not like, you should do this. It was more like, you know, well, what I did in my situation, or have you heard about this? Have you considered this? Like very, very gentle guided information. And it was, that's what it was. It was information. I never felt like I was getting advice or that I was being told what to do about my life. And I felt like I was acknowledged. You know, there were really interesting things that came up learning about advocacy. We had such an interesting conversation about toxic positivity and how a lot of people are stuck in this. Like, it was great. I loved it. I don't even talk about that bad stuff. That's all in the past. Like, everything's fine and I'm good and love and light and blah, blah, blah. And like, that's even more toxic and more dangerous than acknowledging. You have to acknowledge all that pain and suffering and be able to go through it and move out of it. And then another really interesting conversation we had was talking about what brand are you? Like how, and it goes along with advocacy, like how are you living your life? Are you someone that you would take your own advice from? Are you someone that you would look at and be like, wow, I think she's onto something. Like, let me see, there's something here that I want to talk about, you know, because if you're going around preaching about love or forgiveness, but then, you know, you're on your Instagram, like blah, 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 talking, you know, gossiping or like talking about celebrities or like, you know, doing things that are not lining up with the message that you're trying to convey, that's going to turn a lot of people off. And I thought that was really interesting. I always think of myself as a brand now and like, how would I brand myself? How do I want to live with integrity? And how would I, if I looked at myself, would I like what I see? And would I want to follow this person or would I want to listen to this person? So a lot of different things like that. As far as memories, you know, my memory is really good. And I have a lot of memories that have stopped, especially from being in Berg's house. Like there's a very distinct memory where I'm three years old, laying naked on a bed and this man is standing over me in his room. And that's where my memory ends. And that's fine. I'm okay. I don't need to have the whole memory in order to heal. I know something bad happened. I know my brain and my body is protecting me from that memory. And that's what I need to heal from. And so I can take myself from that situation and take my inner child out of that self, give her what she wants, do the whole like completion process. Like we're all taught. I don't need to recall all these horrible memories in order to heal. And that was something that was very liberating for me because a lot of people have this idea in your mind when you're healing, you need to recall every single bad thing that happened to you in right. order to heal. And that's not true. You don't need to. And that's just going to traumatize you further. But you need to know like where this feeling coming from. When's the first time you felt that feeling and just connect it to that first time you felt that feeling and you're able to heal and pull yourself out of it from there. So yeah, it was a great With that being said, were you able to uncover any memories that you had forgotten about in the sessions? I was able to make a lot of connections from memories that didn't make sense to me. Okay. Um, That's a big thing. which is huge. I never, I didn't uncover anything, but I was able to make connections to memories that were always like, that's not right. This doesn't make sense. And I was like, oh, okay, this happened because of this, you know? And even the situation with my mom, how she was so physically abusive to me and she was so physically abusive to others. And she she was responsible for public punishments and separating families. I didn't connect that these things have been done to her. And she was following what was done to her. She was projecting all of that and separating families because her family was separated, public punishments and embarrassments because that's what happened to her. And it was very interesting to connect these things and realize like how cyclical and generational this trauma and abuse was. I'm still uncovering things all the time, but 
I felt also like this was a one-on-one session. It was not a therapist, but it was a safe space. You know, there were candles around, you had a couch, you could get water, coffee, whatever, food if you wanted, whatever you needed. And it was just you and another person. You weren't in a huge ayahuasca session. You weren't in a therapist session with hoarding notes. A shaman. You weren't around a shaman or all these other people, you know, it was just, and if you didn't feel comfortable, you can leave, you know, there's no... You know, a lot of times in ayahuasca, you're not allowed to leave or you can leave, which I did. And then people will come running for you and advise you not to leave again. And that's fine. That works for some people. But for me, I needed that one-on-one in order to go through. It was a release in a way, a verbal release, like this will happen to me. Somebody listen to me and someone acknowledge and someone tell me like, I'm not crazy. Like these things, these memories that I have, like the literal pieces of my life that I've kept are real. And you're and to have someone acknowledge that and be like, yeah, of course it happened to you. Like there's no judgment here. And it was just life-changing. It was great. And I'm so glad I had the opportunity to be able to do that. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's so helpful to have, like you said, or Christina said before, an enlightened witness, right? Because that's essentially all they are. They're enlightened to be able to hear your story and enlightened enough to be able to protect themselves, you know, and to create spiritual boundaries so that they can take on this information, right? Then, you know, just be able to listen and not project and then, you know, guide the situation to help you to make these connections. And so I believe it's the best way to start when first uncovering trauma, right? Because it puts you on this very chronological stream of consciousness where you can just sit down and sort of bear everything all out. Yeah. So yeah. In a way Um, that you want to, and in a way that you feel you have control over. So a lot of times when you're taking plant medicine, you know, you're wanting to heal the specific thing, but the plant medicine will always give you what the plant medicine knows that you need. But sometimes that's not enough. Then you come out and you're even more traumatized because it unveiled all of this other stuff. And your life is kind of in disarray. Like after I did plant medicine, I lost all the money in my bank account because my identity got stolen. I crashed and totaled my car. I got bed bugs in my apartment and I broke up with my boyfriend. And after all, and lost your corporate cushy and job. I lost my job. Like all of these things, like bam, 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 you know. And that was good for me because sometimes I need a shock from the universe, you know, as you know, in order to get myself in line. But for other people, like that's a lot to take. And I know for some others, it was very hard for them. But this is a very guided session where you feel like you're in a safe space and you're not going to leave and all of this crap, like all your life come crumbling down. You're just, and you're integration. just Mm-hmm. Yeah, integration, integration is the, the important part there, right? So that's why yeah. we have Christina who heads our integration platform and helps you to integrate because yeah, you go in there and all these things are uncovered and you're like, holy shit, like fuck, you know, and it can totally, depending on how resilient you are, throw you off the path of healing altogether. It's like, yeah. shit, I just want to put everything back and scare you off. off. Absolutely. You're you, like, whoa, this is way too much. You will light up your neural net of all the traumas that happen, which actually create a vibration and bring more of those things into your life to help to bring pain so that you will integrate. So it's like accelerating some of the unconscious things in your life to come into them. And that's probably the reason why all those things happen to you because you have Mm -hmm. covered all these things. And then that neural net, and you're actually attracting that through the vibration. And then boom, it's there. It's like, there's no way that you can't deal with So I like to preemptively go into those things that people have brought up during this time, helping them see what they don't know that they don't know and integrating all of that new information into their reality in a safe way. So they don't, you know, lose all their money or get fired or anything like that. 
And I think that's that's what's missing from a lot of the medicine journeys that people go on is that afterwards they're just like, they think that they can just go on with their life and all this stuff comes up and they haven't actually processed it. Yeah. And then you don't have a coach or you don't have anyone to reach out to. You can go back to your shaman, but sometimes people travel from other cities. You know, they're coming from four hours away. You can't just pop over to your shaman's place and like get some advice, you know? So I'm not knocking what I went through at all. That was perfect for my situation. And that was all meant to be, but knowing, especially other cult people and people who have experienced child abuse, like I know that that was the way for my healing, but that's not the way for everyone. And it will be different for everybody. So to have all of these options available, knowing that you don't just have to go to therapists or you don't just have to do 90 plant ceremony sessions. And you know, there's, there are other options out there. And that's what I love about the MAPS protocol and what you guys are doing is that you're offering another way, which is a very, very quote unquote, normal, a very safe space in a normal way that like someone like me who is educated and who has a corporate career and who has suffered extreme child abuse. I don't want to go hug a bunch of strangers and sit on a mat and talk about my problems, you know, around in a plant ceremony. I did that and that was great for me, but I don't think that that would work for every single person. So having these other options is great. And I love that this is what you guys are providing. I think those modalities are much more effective afterwards. After you go through our six month fast track program, right? Because then you really laid everything out. Mm-hmm. The people who say that they've had bad trips on psilocybin and psychedelics is because they have no fucking clue what's going on in their subconscious mind. Yeah, it's a war zone. It's yeah. literally so unsafe. That's why they struggle with addiction or alcohol. Anything that can help them escape from their mind. They're not trying to dive in there. You know, mm-hmm. like hell no. So when you take other psychedelics like psilocybin or ayahuasca, all these very intensely visual stuff, it can be a terrifying place and it throws a lot of people off again. That's why I recommend our protocol, which is the MAPS protocol first, and then you can, you know, segue into other other modalities because it's better, it's safer or whatever. So yeah, so I'm in Puerto Rico right now working with two clients. I'm actually going to... France next month and then Ecuador in November. And I'll just be traveling around, meeting up with clients, meeting with them, doing these journeys, staying with them for two days. Christina is going to integrate them. Hopefully she'll be accompanying me on some of these trips, but you have access to us and (laughs) you know, we'll go anywhere in the world. So yeah. And that's great. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience? Any last pieces of advice? Um, Yeah, I mean, I've said it before, but it's so important for me to stress now that I've been doing this and I have been coaching my um, clients and doing trauma recovery myself with others is that there's no one path to healing. And if something doesn't seem right to you, it's not right to you. And you just need to find your own way. And you have the power within yourself to heal anything that you need. You just need a little bit of help from the outside to get there, but it'll be different for everyone. And I don't have all the answers. You guys don't have all the answers. You need to find your own path, but there's no shame in getting help. There's no shame in getting support from others because you need that. The fastest way out is through it and you need that support. So having a support system is important and finding your own path. It doesn't matter what I did. It doesn't matter what anybody else did. You will find the right way for you. And however it happens is the perfect way for your path for your healing. You have to feel it to heal it. 
That's great. Right. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> All right. You can find uh, Serena's Instagram at Serena Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook, Serena, Serena Kelly. Yes. O underscore EM88. And Activation Project. If you guys yeah. want to start your journey, contact us. You can contact Serena, Christina, me um, to get started. We would love to hear from you. Hi. Thank you, guys. Bye. I love you. Bye. 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 <laughs>